Okay. Welcome, everybody. Um, welcome to the Latin American Center's weekly seminar for uh, week two. Um, this term's uh, series is being convened by Svetlana, Chris, and Francesca, but they've very kindly um, invited me to introduce our speaker tonight, since he's an old friend going back to the Reagan administration. Uh, I first met Scott in, uh, in, inside the uh, hallway of Il Pergi, the research institute in Rio de Janeiro, in July of 1985. And I was uh, just celebrating my 23rd birthday. <laughs> and uh, the year following that, I, at Scott's invitation, I went to study with him at the University of Notre Dame. He was my mentor, uh, supervisor, uh, and role model in every way, and has been a great friend ever since. So he introduced me last night to a, a, a packed house in London. He introduced me as Ching Poder. So uh, I have to thank you, Troco. I have to introduce him as Escochi Mainwaringi. So if you look at the uh, Google Scholar profile for Escochi Mainwaringi and look at his bibliometrics, it looks like the U.S. debt clock. I mean, it's like <laughs> Scott pretty much. Uh, Everything we know about presidentialism, political parties, comparative religion, and democratic consolidation in Latin America, we've learned from Scott over the past 30 years. And he's going to be talking about sort of his uh, magnum opus on the topic with uh, another uh, lucky man who went to study with him at Notre Dame, and that's Anibal Perez Lignan from the University of Pittsburgh, who's Scott's uh, co author. So Scott's going to introduce his book, which is coming out right now from Cambridge University Press called uh, Democracies and Dictatorships in Latin America. Thank you, Great. Scott. Thank you so much. It's uh just, there's so many great professional friends here and colleagues. It's just absolutely my, my favorite place, perhaps outside of Notre Dame. So <laughs> I'm thrilled to be here. So um, this book was, we heard, I guess, two or three days ago that it was finally published after a long delay that had to do with this quite beautiful cover that we selected for it. And there were some issues about the copyright anyhow. I haven't seen it yet, but I, I am led to believe that it does now exist. <laughs> so um, we're, we're delighted about that. So the book really has two primary projects. The first one, and, and this is what we began thinking about this, was um, you know, how, what is it that explains why regimes survive or fall in Latin America? Um, but for reasons that I'll get into a little bit, um, you know, this led us to the second ambition for the project, which was to contribute to some broader theoretical debates in this literature about regime survival and fall, or to put it differently, democratic transitions and breakdowns. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty long book, um, and what I'm going to give you today is just you know, little pieces of it. Um, parts of the theory, some of the quantitative evidence, uh, and just a flavor of one of the qualitative chapters, and then a little bit of the conclusions. So we ended up, you know, actually tracing out a, some theoretical ideas about regimes and why do this when there's so much on this subject. Well, the first answer is that theories are integrative. They can be useful as such. The second one is that when we looked at especially some of the recent theories about political regimes, some of the class-based theories that have gained prominence in the last decade, um, we were frankly skeptical about both some of the empirics and some of the theory. 
And then the third thing is um, a lot of the really interesting pioneer work, pioneering work on these issues, such as the O'Donnell, Schmetter, and Juan Linz's work, um, you know, we think they had a lot of great ideas, but they didn't really, they didn't purport to provide a theory, nor do they test much of what they had to say. Um, I don't know, can you see this in the back, this slide? Okay. Um, well, this is, you know, it's a visual graph that represents some important pieces of the theory. Even if you can't see it, I think I can talk through it in a way that will enable, uh, you know, that will, that will enable you to make sense of it. Um, so, a cup, uh, and since some in the back can't see it, I'll speak from the next slides rather from the graph. If we dim the lights in the front, would uh, that bother you? It doesn't bother me, but it's it's also the, not the, essential. The first, it's, okay. it's not essential. Okay. I think we okay. can just proceed like this. Okay. Um, so, you know, a couple basic building blocks of the theory. The first one is that, you know, like most theories, um, we see purposeful actors as being the agents of regime stability or change. What does this mean? It means it's, it's a contrast to deep structural theories in which actors really basically don't even exist, or they emerge directly from the structures, or it's, it's a difference from some kinds of cultural theories in which also one does not see different actors. So these different, act, you know, the different actors, the purposeful actors form different coalitions. Most of the book we think about two competing regime coalitions, one pro-democracy, one pro-dictatorship. In some historical contexts, um, there really are competing pro-authoritarian coalitions so that it could be a revolutionary left and a reactionary right are both authoritarian coalitions that coalesce to some degree in opposition to a democracy. Um, so what about the logic of the actors? We think about two kinds of preferences in, in, the, in the book. The first is a broad range of policy preferences. Um, in some work, you know, actors have fundamentally economic interests. We include economic interests, but this also could be conflicts about religious preferences, education preferences, nationalism, etc. Um, the second kind of preference that we think about is preferences about the political regime itself. So we think about normative preferences for democracy and normative preferences for dictatorship. The different actors weight these different kind of preferences differently. So all actors have normative policy, have policy preferences in this, in this book. And some, but not all, also have independent normative preferences about the political regime. Um, so, on the policy dimension, the policy preferences, we have a scale that we think of as running from policy moderation to radicalism. And we define radicalism as having two dimensions, and both have to be present. So it's not an additive scale, it's, you have to have both. One is that the actor has to have positions away from the center. It doesn't have to be on the far left or the far right, but it can't be in the center. 
of the political spectrum. And the second is what we call policy intransigence or impatience. And that's a willingness to use, in extreme cases, violence or to trample on the rules of democratic politics, inflammatory rhetoric, etc. Um, so on this slide, there are two, you know, visions par excellence of what we consider radicalism. This one, they could be flipped. On the, on the uh, visually on the right is Sendero Luminoso, <laughs> and visually on the left is Pinochet. Um, but uh, these are extreme examples. But you know, one could think of of less extreme examples. What do we mean by a normative preference for democracy? We don't mean simply here. We don't at all mean that it's just that an actor supports a democratic regime, right? You could support a democratic regime for purely instrumental or opportunistic reasons. Um, what we mean is that the actor believes that democracy is intrinsically the best kind of political regime. So this is an actor that's willing to sacrifice something on the policy dimension in order to preserve or build democracy. The famous Churchill quote about democracy being, I, know, I can't exactly re replicate it, but democracy is the worst form of government except all other forms of government, 1947 Houses of Parliament, or the, the House of Commons, I think captures what we're talking about here. Um, and, you know, in the literature about political regimes, one could think about Juan Linz's work on democratic legitimacy or his work on loyal oppositions, right? A loyal opposition is an opposition that believes that democracy is the best possible political regime. Uh, and there are several other references here that one could think about as being antecedents in in the, the way we're thinking about a normative preference for democracy. Um, here I mention also Weber and Lipset. Um, so, you know, democratic legitimacy again means that actors believe in the normative desirability of democracy. So, I'm going to, having explained what we mean by these two concepts, then move to, so what, what are the hypotheses that we try to think about in this book and test? Um, the hypotheses revolve around those two variables and international influences. And I guess I'm, I am going to backtrack just a bit um, to look here. A lot of work, uh, you know, where, where we situate this book is between structure and agency. So a lot of work on political regimes has been here at, on the left end of this. Uh, this isn't left political, but just the left visual here. Um, these are what we think of as background structural and non-structural conditions. Um, and then, you know, Linz and O'Donnell and Schmitter were here closer to the dependent variable in a causal change, chain. And our work is thinking mostly about something that's fairly proximate to the dependent variable, regime change or survival, but um, further away from it than Linz or O'Donnell and Schmitter. So um, the one further away in a causal chain variable that we work with systematically throughout the book is international influences. 
And here, you know, the seminal person uh, who really began this literature, Lawrence Whitehead, we're fortunate that he's with us. And we think about a variety of different kinds of ways, six different mechanisms by which international influences can affect regime change or survival. Um, and I might just run quickly through them. The first is the transnational diffusion of beliefs about the desire about you know policy moderation. Um, second, or um, the desirability of democracy or dictatorship. Second, demonstration effects. So this is you know you're an actor in some country and you see what transpires in a neighboring country. It doesn't change your sense about what desirable outcomes are, it changes your sense about what is possible today. The third, in incentives and sanctions of international actors alter domestic actors' choices about the political regime, that's self-explanatory. The fourth, international resources empower one coalition or another. Um, then fifth, an actor, and this is fundamentally about the Catholic Church, an actor that simultaneously international and domestic, and finally invasions and other foreign ways to overthrow a regime. On this one, you know, the U.S. is the obvious only important player in Latin America. A couple just, you know, quick points about international influences on regimes. Um, I think it's now, you know, many people have made this point, but all of the conventional comparative politics explanations about political regimes missed this very important international dimension. And then the second is that um, we try to integrate the international and the domestic um, in what we hope is a convincingly, uh, a theoretically convincing way. So I want to link the international to two characteristics of regime change in Latin America which you'll see in just a moment um, with a slide. But what are the two characteristics? First, that regime change occurs in waves. So there, uh, and the second, that, that you see for the region as a whole, often dramatic transformations in a very short period. These pictures here are seven of the many democratically elected presidents who were inaugurated from 1978 through 1985, um, that is the period of most um, dramatic transformation uh, from 1978 to 1990. So let me first spell out um, our hypotheses and then show you a slide about Latin America from 1900 to 2010 about regime transformations. Um, most of these hypotheses, you know, in a way sound intuitively obvious. Um, and I'd be happy to engage you in conversation about ways in which they aren't obvious. I think really the system of hypotheses is more interesting than the individual hypotheses. But the first one, the, the first three hypotheses are about the stability or breakdown of competitive regimes. Okay? So um, first, that powerful radical actors increase the probability of democratic breakdowns. Second, that if the actors in the system believe that democracy is the best possible political regime, you're more likely to have democratic survival. 
And then third, that a democratic regional political environment decreases the odds of breakdown. We have two you know, hypotheses for survival or breakdown of authoritarian regimes that mirror two of those. We don't have a hypothesis about radicalism. Why? Because radical oppositions might be effective in triggering the breakdown of authoritarian regimes. There are many such instances in Latin American history. But on the other hand, one can imagine that radical oppositions would cause entrenched authoritarian regimes to dig in more. So just we thought ex ante, it wasn't too clear which of those effects would be more important, more powerful. Can you see this slide in the back? This traces a few different measures of change in regimes in Latin America from 1900 to 2010. So we created our own measure of regimes. We coded the regimes of 20 Latin American countries as democratic, semi-democratic, or authoritarian over those 110 years um, for, 20, for the 20 countries. We also used a few other um, measures, polity, um, Freedom House, um, and uh, the percentage of the regional population under democracy or semi-democracy. The other measures, except this one, weigh each country evenly. So um, uh, 100 on the scale by our measure would mean that all 20 countries were democratic in a given year. Zero would mean that all 20 countries were authoritarian in that year. And 50 would mean half and half, obviously. So what, what you see, you know, and this is familiar to some of you and not to others, is again this wave-like phenomenon. Um, so you have some early cases of democratization early in the 20th century, then a long, pretty long period until 1944 of stasis or, or some breakdowns. Uh, and then in 19, from 1944 to 48, one sees a pretty important burst of democratization stimulated by the end of World War II and the, you know, the, the animus against dictatorship at that time. That proves to be ephemeral. Those democracies break down. 1956, you see another very powerful wave that lasts until 1962. And then you see this long trough here you know, that goes down to the, the nadir in 1977. In 1977, 17 of the 20 countries were openly authoritarian, uh, and three had democracies or at least competitive political regimes. And then in 1978, you see this, you know, quite stunning burst uh, that really transformed Latin America very, very profoundly uh, in 12 years. So, how how do we test a theory? How do we test this theory? Um, so we have a quantitative chapter um, that provides, um, you know, that looks at the how how across space and time how well does this do, do our hypotheses hold up? And then some qualitative chapters, a couple of long qualitative studies, and the qualitative studies really do something quite differently in the different in the book 
than the quantitative chapter does. The qualitative studies pay close attention to, to causal sequences, to sequences, which is really helpful for understanding causal mechanisms. Second, you know, we look at the interactions among actors, which is pretty hard to do quantitatively, very hard to do with this kind of data set. Third, we look at the formation and dissolution of regime coalitions, uh, which we don't do quantitatively. Fourth, uh, and I can say more about this, but you know, we look at issues of endogeneity both quantitatively and qualitatively, but I, I think the qualitative work helps tease out some of these questions of endogeneity. And then fifth, you have more detail and better measurement of some independent variables. So regime classification, I already said something about this. The quantitative work focuses on 1945 to 2005. So we have 1,220 country years. As I mentioned, the regime classification is fundamentally trichotomous. How do these years break down? It's 576 years of dictatorship. So the dependent variable there is whether the dictatorship survives from one year to the next or whether there's a transition. For the 644 years of competitive regimes, the dependent variable is pretty much the same, whether you have a democratic breakdown or the survival of the competitive year. Um, we have in the data set um, 26 breakdowns and 37 transitions from authoritarianism to competitive regimes. Um, so how did we, you know, this is a theory about actors. So how do you study across 20 countries and over a long period of time, how do you study actors? We, we, had, we spent a long time figuring this out, and what we ultimately did um, was we took the 290 presidential administrations in these 20 countries from 1944 to 2010. We began it, the coding a year earlier, and we commissioned a research team. We, we gave them coding rules. Here's how you choose who the most important actors are in each presidential administration. Now we want you to code two variables. One is policy moderation to radicalism, and the other is whether these actors show a normative preference for dictator for some kind of a dictatorship. Most actors that support dictatorships do so for instrumental or opportunistic reasons, but there are many actors across Latin American history and elsewhere who really think that some kind of dictatorship is the best possible form of regime. So, you know, parts of the left, parts of the right have always had this ideology, this attitude. And then we devised coding rules. Here's how you code these two variables. So, you know, fundamentally, and, and then we scaled them. So we scaled each actor zero to one on both of these variables. Um, and so we had, you know, across these 290 presidential administrations, we have um, 1,460 actors. So the country reports on average are 83 single-spaced pages and have about 50 references on average. 
Um, and you know, so we, the, and all they do is code these actors. So there's a lot of detail um, that went into this part of the work. So just to give you a sense, you know, who are the actors? The actors are mostly, they're either presidents or they're important organizations. What kind of organizations? Parties, militaries, um, guerrilla groups, um, social movements, uh, labor unions, um, business associations, and so forth. Um, so that's how we tackled, you know, if you want to have a theory about actors, and part of the theory is that their dispositions influence their behavior and then regime outcomes, that's how we tackled, you know, how do you, how do you analyze actors across a lot of countries and over a lot of time. The, um, these two charts show over time for um, competitive regimes first and then the authoritarian regimes. These are the time trends. First for radicalism is the solid line and the dotted line is normative preferences for democracy. So, um, you know, as you would expect, um, the normative preference for democracy tends to be lower in authoritarian regimes and higher in competitive regimes, but it's clearly not anywhere close to a one-to-one -one mapping. What about the international variables? We tried to tease out three quite different possible effects, quite different, you know, what, what is going on when we say that there are international influences on regimes. So first is the average level of democracy in the region without a country, the country in question, right? Second is the global level of democracy using polity scores. And then third, we constructed a variable for US policy toward Latin America. And what this variable is, is how favorable or unfavorable U.S. policy was toward democracy in Latin America. And I can tell you how we constructed this variable. We, there were eight pretty objective questions. We had a research team look at every U.S. administration and code each of those eight questions. And again, we scaled from zero to one. Zero means that, you know, that the U.S. had no interest in supporting democracy and often supported dictatorships. And one is U.S. policy is pretty favorable toward democracy in Latin America. And again, you see, you know, a lot of variation over time. Um, this is the Cold War here. Here's the short spike again in the 1940s toward the, world, the end of World War II. Um, here's the, uh, the Carter period, and it drops precipitously in the first Reagan administration, and then comes back. Um, so the quantitative analysis, we also think about three groups of alternative explanations. Some structural variables, economic performance, and formal institutions. I don't think I'm, I, you know, they're, they're the specific um, variables are that we use. Now, I don't think you're going to be able to see this, um, and Tim reminded me that, um, you know, that this is an interdisciplinary group, and he said, you know, you can tone down some of the regression phony speech by two degrees. Um, uh, so for both reasons, I'm going to just, you know, 
tell you what the most important statistical results are. Um, this first slide is what explains transitions to democracy. And, um, you know, there are two things come up as, as statistically and substantively important. First is actors' normative preferences, that is, their attitudes about democracy and dictatorship. And the second one is the regional political environment. How many other democracies are there in the region? Now, many of our, I think many of our negative findings are as interesting as the positive findings, and we run these, you know, with and with, we run these a lot of different ways. So the negative findings hold even if you don't include the, these positive variables here. So, for example, per capita GDP has no impact on the probability of democratic transitions. Economic performance has no impact. Right? So authoritarian regimes survive at the same rate regardless of economic performance. Um, income inequality, um, oil wealth, and then finally actors' radicalism has no impact on the probability of democratic transitions. Here are the models for competitive regimes, that is the survival or breakdown of competitive regimes. And again, I'm just going to skip to the, the content here. Um, so these are the first, the first four are the variables that, that do have an important statistical and substantive impact on regime survival. High radicalism does push democratic breakdowns. Second, low normative commitments to democracy do push democratic breakdowns. Third, in contrast to our finding, we get a slightly different finding about US policy. U.S. policy that is not supportive of democracy does have an impact on democratic breakdowns. And fourth, again, the regional political environment is an important variable. Again, um, you know, and in contrast to what one finds in data sets that go beyond Latin America, um, the level of development has no impact on democratic breakdowns. Um, oil wealth has no impact, um, economic performance has no impact, and the Gini coefficient has no impact. Um, now, these are simulation results using, I mean, very extreme examples that aren't found in the actual data, but they make a point. Um, this is simulation results for breakdowns. If all of the actors in a country were committed to democracy, and all of the countries in the region were democracies and all other independent variables were set at the mean value, you'd have a 0% probability of a, given, of a breakdown in a given regime in a given year. Conversely, if you have the exact opposite negative scenario, in a single year for a single regime, you have an 82% probability of a breakdown. So we're talking about very, you know, the, as, as I said, the, the hypothetical <coughs> scenario here is extreme. It doesn't exist in the data, but you can see the extraordinary impact. Economic performance, it's, it seems puzzling that it has no impact on either kind of regime. So I want to say maybe just something quickly about it. Um, and the two things to say about it are first that 
actors don't necessarily attribute bad performance to the political regime. This is an argument that a few, you know, so, some people have made previously. And even if they do attribute the bad performance to the regime, they might still prefer that regime. That is, actors, you know, have multiple um, preferences here, both on the policy dimension and the regime dimension. Um, and if you look, if you think about the Latin American sample, right, I mean, from on average performance, economic performance in the first quarter century of the third wave of democratization was terrible. So we're talking about 1978 to 2003. It was much worse than in previous democratic waves, and yet the breakdown rate plummeted. It plummeted from about 11% in a given regime year to under 1%. So we're talking about more than a 90% rate in the drop in the breakdown rate, despite much worse economic performance from 1978 to 2003. A note about the international context. Um, you know, we find our findings are consistent with those of Christian Gledich for a, a broader sample, that it's really the region that has leverage. It's what goes on in the region rather than globally that really matters, at least for these six decades for Latin America. Um, and you know, to make a powerful point that, the, or the point that Lawrence Whitehead really made so brilliantly, uh, beginning the 80s and 90s, to understand regime patterns, you have to look at international factors, right? I mean, the, this is another research issue on which the traditional divorce between comparative politics and international relations just does not work. You have to look at the international. Um, we go back and, you know, we actually have another full chapter, which is one of my favorites on international influences. And then in chapter, after that chapter, we, we talk some about the current um, dynamics, regime dynamics in Latin America. And although, you know, to look at, when you look at type of regime, the survival or not of regimes, international influences are very important. Um, nevertheless, in, in this chapter where we look at contemporary dynamics in regimes, um, we qualify that. Um, uh, the international influences in contemporary Latin America, we, we argue, make it difficult for overt coups to transpire but they've been very ineffectual in doing anything to move the quality of democracy. That is, you know, you can have a very low quality democracy, semi-democracy, and international actors have been completely ineffectual in changing that. Uh, also, um, you know, it's maybe noteworthy that we argue that in recent years there's been some backsliding and the capacity of international actors to intervene effectively. Um, every now and then, you know, people ask this question. So, um, you've looked, you know, the, the the regressions through in in the chapter that I presented part of. Look at country years, regime years, as the unit of analysis. How do you explain waves? So we take that on in chapter seven. I'm not going to really be able to present much of that, but. We do address in that chapter, um, you know, what, how, how do you aggregate from country years to waves? 
And substantively, one of the things that we argue in that chapter is that to look at the wave of democratization, this 1978 wave on, which radically changed the region, um, these three variables are all important. You have a much more favorable regional political environment. Um, you saw in that slide the decline in radicalism with a slight uptick in the last decade again and a pretty marked change in normative commitments to democracy. Now, um, every time I give this talk, you know, I mean, this is... the. It's, it's about as predictable as rain in London in the winter. Um, you know, people ask, and, and it's, it's an important question. Um, are normative preferences too close to the dependent variable? You know, should you, are you asking, do you have, should that, you know, how can you have normative preferences explaining outcomes? Um, and I'm happy to say much more about this in Q&A, but let me just mention you know, four points here that, that I think are important. Um, first, that, believe me, I mean, no matter how you run any regression, the causally more distant theories and variables that we have conventionally used just do not explain regime outcomes in Latin America, at least from 1945 on. Um, the second is, and, and you know, we did in um, an earlier chapter, we you know, um, tried to explain normative preferences. Actually, we tried to explain the change in stability in normative preferences throughout the book. But one, one thing that is clear quantitatively and qualitatively is that these normative preferences are not reducible to. They are partly explained by broader structural variables. But they're not reducible to them. So if you run endogeneity tests statistically, um, you know, you can, um, the structural variables are significant, but the normative preferences still have an impact on regime outcomes. The third point um, is that any, I would argue that any cogent explanation of regime outcomes has to work through a actor's behavior, right? I mean, even, you know, if, if you're modernization theory, you have to still have a theory about how modernization changes who the actors are and what they want. Any theory about regimes has to go through actors. And the fourth point here is that we're claiming that the way actors perceive the world, that their normative preferences influence their behavior and therefore their outcomes. So that's, I mean, that's kind of the, the, the theory behind the theory. Some people, you know, there are very important schools in political science and, and other social sciences that believe that actors are exclusively instrumental. Um, and this is another important question to take on, of course. Um, we devised 20 pages of coding rules that we hope, you know, we think are a pretty good test for screening out instrumental preferences as opposed to normative preferences. Um, but you also have to ask the question, you know, and, and I would say that, you know, in our two qualitative chapters, Argentina and El Salvador, you can explain an awful lot of what goes on in both of those countries until the third wave of democracy through instrumental behavior. 
Okay, so it's not like we're saying normative preferences explain everything and instrumental behavior explains nothing. I'd say to the contrary, you know, instrumental behavior is really important. But there are a lot of results that are really weird if you think instrumental behavior explains everything. Why did democracy survive in Argentina with a 4,923% inflation rate, you know, if behavior is simply instrumental? That is to say, you know, these, these regimes, some of them survive despite horrible behavior, uh, horrible performance that inflicted very high costs on most important actors. Um, so just, you know, the qualitative cases, um, I'm going to just give you, you know, the slightest flavor of what we try to do with them because I don't have time to do more than that. Um, why these two cases? Well, um, we chose one case, which is an exemplar that goes from multiple breakdowns to stable democracy. There are about, there are, I, think it's, I think it was eight countries in the region that pretty well fit this group. And then there's a second group also of eight or nine that goes from persistent authoritarianism to stable democracy. Um, so these two groups cover most of Latin America. Um, and the question that we ask in the chapter in El Salvador, what, we have three questions. What explains persistent authoritarianism until 1984? What explains the transition? And what explains the stabilization? For Argentina, we have two questions. What explains why democracy broke down five times? Some people would say 1955. We code uh, Perón, the Peronista period, as competitive authoritarian from 1951 on. Uh, and then what explains stabilization since 1983? Recall, I mean, these are five breakdowns in Argentina, despite throughout much of the 20th century having the highest level of development in Latin America despite having a, the lowest inequality in Latin America and low by global standards until 1976, high human capital and a strong working class. Um, so, you know, as you would expect, um, our answer focuses on these three factors. First, that you have few actors with a normative preference for democracy. So, actors in Argentina are very instrumental during this very long time period. Uh, and this helps to explain why you get so many regime cycles. Second, you know, there were some earlier radical actors, but you see really dramatic radicalization in Argentina in the 1960s and 70s, which makes it very difficult to sustain democratic experiences. And third, you know, also uh, an unfavorable international environment from the Cold War through 1977. Most conventional alternative explanations for Argentina for breakdowns fail. Um, what explains stabilization since 1983? Well, some of the powerful actors now have a pretty clear normative preference for democracy. There's been a complete disappearance of actors with a normative preference for dictatorship, the decline of actors with radical policy preferences, and then finally, a much more favorable regional environment. Again, most, you know, many obvious alternative explanations for stabilization in Argentina fail. 
the level of modernization. Argentina in 1983, when it began democracy, was poorer than when it began democracy in 1973, and it wasn't much wealthier than some of the previous attempts. Argentina in 1983 was a much more unequal country than it had been previously, um, and the class power, the, the working class, was weaker in 1983 than it had been subsequently. Uh, previously, I meant to say, and then economic performance, you know, is the worst of all since most of the period from 1983 to 2002 was devastating for most Argentines. Um, so, you know, when you, the basic thing I want to argue here is that I don't think either the qualitative or the quantitative evidence, you know, makes, makes a, a great case, but together I think it's a pretty important case for what we're arguing. Um, to summarize, international factors are very important on transitions and breakdowns. Second, um, radical actors lower the probability of survival of competitive regimes. Third, normative preferences strongly influence transitions and breakdowns. Um, and then uh, I think I'm just going to maybe skip to the end right there. <laughs> okay, thank you.